My name is Alexi Chanzantonio. I'm a graduate student at Regent College where I've been studying for the past two years, uh, studying mainly the New Testament. And today, I'm gonna be keeping up my track record of being assigned to preach on very difficult texts here at St. Peter's. Daniel 7 is the part of the book where everything changes. It's the center of the book and it's the turning point of the book. It's almost nothing like everything that went before. And in some ways, it's almost nothing like things that come after. It's written in a completely different language from the rest of the book here on in. Daniel 7 is in Aramaic. Daniel 8 through 12 is in Hebrew. So if you're following the original language, it's like, like, hello, like this is different. But the style of Daniel 7 is, it's called apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic. That stands just as a noun, even though it's an adjective. So sorry about that. Um, but it's apocalyptic, so it's a very different style from everything that came before it. Things that came before it, um, they're generally called court tales. Um, they're, they're pretty folksy. Um, some people think they're somewhat two-dimensional. You know, the heroes are very, very good, and the bad guys are very, very bad. Um, and, and they're just these, these um, sort of tales in the courtroom. And then you have Daniel 7, and it's like, kaboom, Daniel 7. Very different uh, sort of animal. In fact, in fact, one scholar uh, has gone so far as to say that one particular phrase in one particular verse in this particular chapter of Daniel has caused more debate than any other verse in the entire Hebrew Bible. That's an Old Testament scholar from, from Yale University who, who recently said that in a major commentary. So, with the text as controversial and as seemingly off-putting as this one, I hope you'll understand that there's a certain amount of throat clearing that needs to happen before we can actually get around to saying what needs to be said. And actually, as it happens, I do have a cough this morning, so there might actually be some real life you know, throat clearing uh, before we get around to saying what needs to be said. But um, there really is so much to say. I don't know if you noticed this, but this is a pretty long chapter, and there's a lot of pretty strange things going on. Um, if you were you know, paying attention, even just, just vaguely paying attention to the scripture reading, I think you'll probably have caught that. So this morning is going to be more like a scratch and sniff than anything else. We're just going to get around to some of the most um, um, potent things of the text, and not much more than that. Those of you who stayed in Vancouver this past summer may or may not remember that I preached a one-off sermon on the book of Revelation a few months ago. And as it happens, I talked about the book of Daniel in that, in that sermon. And as it happens, I talked about Daniel 7 during that sermon, which is the chapter that we're talking about today. But, of course, it's perfectly fine if you don't remember that, or if you weren't here to hear it, or if you're still trying pretty hard to forget it, uh, you might actually be better off if you don't keep the things in mind that we said then, uh, now, as we're looking at Daniel. This isn't only because there's an overlap between the stuff that we're talking about Daniel right now and what we talked about Revelation back then, uh, and that overlap makes it difficult for me to avoid a certain amount of overlap in my sermons, you know, and I want to sound like new and punchy and fresh and those sorts of things. Um, but it's also because sometimes our familiarity with the New Testament, which the, the book of Revelation is in the New Testament, the end of the New Testament, uh, our familiarity with the New Testament, even if it's just a cursory familiarity with the New Testament, can sometimes cloud and even confuse our reading of the Old Testament. 
we bring to the text things that we are assuming to be there, and we start looking for certain things that really may or may not be present in the text, and we end up missing the things that really are there because we're expecting something else. In any case, the big idea, the main idea that we're going to be exploring this morning from the book of Daniel, this is the, if you scratch the sticker and smell it, this is what I'm hoping that you get, is this. Inhumane and even dehumanizing practices and policies will not stand before God, who is renewing humanity to be and to act really and truly human. In his autobiography, C.S. Lewis talked about how he learned from a friend the importance of committing one's whole being to the delight of a thing, capital T, thing, which can be anything and everything that you are ascribing value to, basically. And he called this, the, and I'm quoting here, the serious yet gleeful determination to rub one's nose in the very quiddity or the very thingness of each thing, to rejoice in its being so magnificently what it is. So, for example, he talked about setting out to find the windiest ridge on a windy day just to take in its windiness. And he talked about setting out to find the wettest log on a, quote, dismal and dripping day just to enjoy its wetness. And he said that learning this was part of, uh, it was a crucial part of his education as a seeing, listening, smelling, receptive creature. His point is summed up well in one of his more famous quotes, where he said this, shut your mouth, Open your eyes and ears. Take in what is there and give no thought to what might have been there or what is somewhere else. That can come later if it must come at all. It might be a stretch, but I don't think it's too much of a stretch to apply this to literature and for our purposes this morning to biblical or religious literature. This is what I would like us to do with Daniel this morning, and in fact, it's what I think Daniel himself is trying to invoke in us and from us, this sort of, this sort of clear-eyed, full-bodied run-in with reality as it really is. But Daniel does this in a very peculiar way. He uses bizarre and visually evocative language to depict things, peoples, places, policies, politics as something that they technically aren't in order to get to the heart of what they really truly are. He uses otherworldly images to invest this worldly realities with what is perceived to be their fuller, truer significance. This is actually fairly common in poetry. Think about William Blake's famous poem, The Tiger. Are there any English lit majors in here familiar with The Tiger? It's a great poem. And it starts off with a couplet that goes like this. And now to, your, to the English lit majors, I apologize. I'm not the greatest at reading poetry out loud. Um, but there you have it. It starts off like this. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. So we've got a tiger. 
The tiger is on fire. The tiger is brightly shining. It's in a dark forest at nighttime. Now, no one here, and especially not the English lit majors here, would take this to mean that William Blake thinks that tigers make especially good torches for nighttime walks in the woods. No, Blake is attempting, among other things, to capture the essential tigerness of a tiger. That's what, what uh, uh, literary critics have said about the poem. He's giving us a window into what a tiger really is by poetically depicting it as something it technically isn't. And of course, he's doing this not to say something about tigers. He's saying it about something that mirrors the essential tigerness of a tiger. So in, in this case, I think most critics think uh, that, that Blake is talking about the fierceness and, and forcefulness of the human soul. But that's the way that he's using language. And this is how poetry often works, modern poetry, ancient poetry, uh, etc. And in the same way, or at least a vaguely similar way, the symbolic language that Daniel is, is using in this chapter, the twisted monsters, the talking horns, and the thrones with wheels on, may seem to us to muddy his message, but he's actually using them in an attempt, like William Blake or C.S. Lewis of a certain sort, to rub our noses in the thingness of a thing. The thingness of what Daniel is seeing and trying to communicate to us. So, for Daniel, a king who acts more like a monster than a man is being pictured precisely as such, a monster, mirroring in the metaphor his inhumane policies and practices and therefore showing them for what they really are, inhumane, even monstrous. And it's Daniel 7 in particular, where all this symbolically charged language really starts to pick up. So let's uh, turn to Daniel 7, the actual text now. Um, it's a long text, as, as we just witnessed. I'm not going to set out and start reading um, big, big portions of it. But if you have a Bible with you, you can, you can follow along. If you don't have one, uh, you, please do take one of our gray Bibles home with you. It's our gift to you. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 8 at, at this point. So the chapter begins with Daniel's retelling of a dream, or as he puts it, the visions of his head as he lay in his bed. So yeah, a dream. And in his dream, he sees a great sea. The sea is stirred up by, by, by wind, by great wind. So it's this chaotic sea. And out of the sea, four beasts are coming, are coming out of it. And they they're, they're each different from one another, and they're coming up from the beast, uh, excuse me, from the sea in consecutive order. So first, there's a lion with eagle's wings and human's feet and a human's mind. Second, there's a bear with three ribs in its mouth, and it's told to arise and eat much flesh, prob probably human flesh, that's not said. Third, there's a leopard with four wings and four leopard heads. And fourth, and finally, there's an unidentified beast that stands out from the rest with iron teeth and ten horns on its head, three of which are then uprooted and replaced by a little horn. So it's just this little one. 
And that little horn has human eyes on it and a mouth that's speaking great things. That's, that's what we're working with this morning. <laughs> this is definitely a lot stranger than William Blake, I, I think. Everything leading up to this point in the book is relatively tame in comparison to this. We have a few glances into this sort of strangeness. Um, in chapter 2, there's a dream of, of a, a statue and so on. But, but this is really where the book starts to get weird. Thankfully, a common feature of this sort of literature, of apocalyptic literature, is that after a vision like this is seen, the person who sees it is usually just as confused as we are. And so they usually approach an angel who usually just happens to be standing somewhere nearby, and they ask it what on earth that meant. And, this is the best part, they're usually given a pretty straightforward interpretation. It's actually very convenient. Uh, and and uh, this, is a, this is a very common feature of this, lit- of this sort of literature. You b- read the book of Revelation, and that's often what's happening. You see something really weird. The person that saw it is like, oh. And then the angel comes by and says, oh, by the way, that, this is that, essentially. And that's what Daniel does here in, in chapter 7. The first half is a vision or maybe a series of visions or some dreams or whatever. Uh, and he sees it, and then he asks the angel. And then the second half of the chapter is the angel telling him what's going on. So he sees it, weirded out, goes on from there. And the angel, when he asks about the beasts, the angel's response, uh, the angel's interpretation is this, in verse 17. These four great beasts are four kings. There you have it, pretty clear. The four beasts with the weird, the horns and the wings and the heads and everything, they're kings. But we can actually go a step further. The the four beasts aren't merely four kings. They're also more generally the the kingdoms that they represent. And we know this because when Daniel asks the angel specifically about the fourth beast near the end of the chapter and the whole horn deal, the angel interprets it by saying in verse 23, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom. Didn't say king. Changed now from king to kingdom. There'll be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms. So the other three are kingdoms too. They're not just kings. And it will devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. So the four beasts are four kings. And more broadly, they are four oppressive kingdoms that those kings represent. And those kingdoms are lobbying for world domination, essentially, at the expense of the world's inhabitants. It's pretty much that simple. But it's easy to get distracted here with trying to identify each of the kings and and kind of draw lines between the the monsters and the kingdoms, historically speaking. Um, Modern scholars have usually proposed that Babylon and Media, Persia and Greece are standing behind these things, and it seems to go fairly well with some of the descriptions. Um, may not seem that way. <laughs> what? How does that go well with the description? But it seems to go fairly well with the descriptions. Many early Christians in the first, second century understood Rome to figure into this somehow. So they kind of tallied up the beasts in a different way and said, no, that one's not Greece, it's Rome. That makes sense for somebody living in that time period. 
Throughout history, Christians have tried to see communist Russia, even Nazi Germany here. And today, there are some minority Christian, excuse me, minority Christian groups that claim to find traces of Muslim extremism. And even, I'm not, I'm not joking about this, there's whole books about this, the United States of America. But I think that we're on much safer ground simply to follow what Daniel says about these kings and the kingdoms and how and why he says it rather than try to play this sort of speculative game of, of who's who. I, for one, think that the modern scholars are, are probably right, probably onto something, um, but it's not a hill that I'm wanting to die on, especially not this morning. In any case, it might seem like this is a pretty roundabout way to talk about kings. You know, who, whoever the kings are and whatever kingdoms they're representing, it's still an odd way to go about talking about them. Why not just say in the first place, four kings came up out of the earth or something like that? It's really easy just to sidestep the confusion and just undercut the seemingly dramatic and unnecessary language in the first place. But I think that the reason that Daniel doesn't do that is that there's something that's being said about their thingness. We're being shown something important about these kings and their kingdoms, something that's basic to who or what they really truly are, but that we would miss if Daniel would demote his poetic language into mere prose. It's the sort of thing that I think would happen if we would turn Homer's Odyssey or John Milton's Paradise Lost into a movie. It might be good, but it wouldn't be the same. And we would be missing things, arguably the most important things, that we can only really get in the poetry. And the most obvious point that's being made, poetically speaking, and possibly the most important point being made, is that the kings aren't human. They're beasts. Inhumane kings and their dehumanizing practices and policies are being visually depicted as inhuman, even subhuman. But it goes even further beyond that because the four beasts aren't even properly beasts either. They're, they're much more like monsters. They're characterized by this sort of unnatural, unnatural mixture of different kinds of animals. We have a lion mixed with an eagle, a leopard with multiple wings and multiple heads, and so on. It might seem like it's an odd point to make, but it's very significant. In the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, God is said to have made the animals, the beasts, uh, each according to its kind. That, that phrase, uh, he made the fish each according to its kind, and he made the birds each according to its kind, et cetera. Um, even the plants actually made the plants each according to its kind. Um, it, it's this sort of phrase that, that repeats, it's a refrain that the author of Genesis 1 ref, uh, comes back to very much like a poem uh, time and time again. It's almost liturgical, actually, uh, in, in, in that text. And this is very likely what's standing behind the monstrous concoction of kinds in Daniel 7. The creatures are being visually depicted in biblically loaded language as out of step with the creator himself, defying his created order. They're not each according to their kind. The leopard isn't a leopard. It's got wings. That's the point. They're not human. 
They're not even properly beasts. They're a sort of representative of a, of a chaos creature, of a monster, the converse of creation. Everything that creation isn't, and according to Genesis 1, shouldn't be. Not only are these monster empires in defiance against God and fundamentally at odds with human flourishing, they're presented as antithetical to creation itself. This is wrong with the world, is the idea. As a result, Daniel then watches as the creator God, who's now being faithful to his creation and faithful to his creatures, human uh, humans included, sets up his throne and sits in judgment over the monstrous kingdoms in a sort of cosmic courtroom scene. Let's read Daniel 7, 9 to, 11, 9 to 10. Excuse me. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne were was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him, and thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. The point of this passage is actually fairly straightforward, so we're not going to dwell on, on some of the details that, that we could dwell on otherwise. Basically, the whiteness and brightness of the vision is probably meant to signify divinity of some kind or, or otherness or transcendence or just difference from, you know, normal everyday life. Um, and, and the wheels on the throne, so that there's wheels on it, and, and also the fact that thrones are said to be set up, they're placed, they're put somewhere, probably suggests that God is moving his court around and setting it up on earth. So you can pick, God's not even getting up, is the idea. He's sitting in his throne, and the thing's got wheels on it, and, you know, kind of wheeling over. From the, the idea is probably wheeling down his throne from heaven, um, you know, squeaking over to the earth, is, is the sort of idea that's happening. And he gets there, and then when he gets there, sitting on his throne, uh, the other thrones are being placed around him, or beside him, or in front of him, or, or whatever. The idea of that very peculiar image that I hope never leaves your mind, is that God's kingship and God's judgment is universally transportable, as it were. It can and does go anywhere and everywhere. Can't get away from it. These beasts can't get away from it. They look like they are because they're doing some pretty vicious things, you know, devouring flesh and trampling on the earth, etc., but they're not. So what we have is a courtroom scene where God is depicted in dazzling terms as the ancient of days, as he sets up his court and presides as a judge over the beasts. Over the next couple of verses, Daniel then watches as God's judgment of the beasts is meted out. The fourth and greatest kingdom is brought to ruin, and the three other kingdoms that preceded it are stripped of their political power. They are then, this is the key, they are then visually contrasted in the sharpest possible terms when God, the Ancient of Days, on his throne, is approached not by another misshapen monster, but by one like a human being. 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, not to the beasts, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples and nations and languages, presumably the kingdoms that the beasts are representing, should serve him. His dominion shall be an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Again, unlike that of the beasts, which is being judged, being destroyed, or brought to ruin in some kind, anyway. This is the passage that I mentioned earlier as having stirred up more scholarly debate than any other passage in the Hebrew Bible. And the particular phrase that's the culprit of the controversy is, is the one at the very beginning, the one like a son of man. It's a fairly well-known phrase. We're, we're sort of familiar with it. Um, if you're vaguely familiar with the New Testament, you've probably read this phrase before or heard it said in church before. And you might not have known <clears throat> that it's very controversial. And there's a lot of debate about what on earth this means. But don't worry. We're not actually really going to be dipping into that debate. It's very heady and technical. It has a lot to do with language and the way that language is used. It's very fascinating, but it's beside the point. Instead, I'm going to point out just three of the most important things to know about this text. And fortunately for us, those three things are relatively uncontroversial. They're three things that the majority of scholars, of interpreters, of, of professionals, um, more or less agree on. <clears throat> First off, the one like a son of man has nothing to do with sons and nothing to do with men. It has everything to do with humanity, or better, humanness, the humanness of a human. The way that the Aramaic works here, and it's the way that the Hebrew works elsewhere, is idiomatic. A son of man is a man. It's a human being. The idea is that kind begets kind each according to its kind. It's the same sort of idea here. This might be an overgeneralization, but I think it's fairly safe to say that most parents would be very surprised if they had a child that turned out to be anything other than human. Although, there's probably some parents in the room that would be less surprised than others. But in this case, um, the phrase one like a son of man really is virtually the same thing as saying one like a human being. It's not sonship. It's not manhood that counts, it's being human. Excuse me. Second, <clears throat> it's clear, <clears throat> it's clear that the crucial point being made is the fundamental contrast between the inhuman and the human, the monsters versus the man. In the vision, dominion is being taken away from the beasts and being given over to humanity, which should, again, remind us of Genesis chapter 1, where God created humanity, male and female, and he created them to image himself into the world, extending through them his own wise and loving rule over his creation, including over the beasts. That's the word that's used in Genesis 1, to rule over the beasts of the field. 
You catch the play that, that's happening here in Daniel? The idea is that there's this sort of reversal of created order. The beasts are ruling over the world rather than the, the, the humans, the, 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 the one like a human being, ruling over the beasts. This is sort of an anti-creation image. And Daniel is now watching as God is writing, writing the reversal. Third, and finally, notice that the text doesn't say on the clouds of heaven there came one like, or excuse me, uh, it doesn't say that on the clouds of heaven there came a human being. <clears throat> it's more elusive than that. It says there came one like a human being. Daniel is still using the sort of language of representation and approximation. He didn't suddenly switch from talking about metaphorical monsters who actually represent kings and kingdoms and then to talking now about a literal individual human figure who simply just represents himself. No. Just as the monsters are these corporate figures that point to entire peoples and policies, so too the one like a human being represents a who, what? Jesus is usually the answer that we want to say. But I want to say no, but yes, but not exactly. This is where we need to remember C.S. Lewis, and we need to determine to rub our noses in the Danielness of Daniel, to open our eyes and ears and take in what is there, to allow this text to be so magnificently what it is. I think that it's here that our familiarity with the New Testament can begin to cloud or confuse, bringing us or putting us at risk of misunderstanding the passage. Whereas the New Testament frequently and unequivocally identifies Jesus as, quote, the Son of Man, the human being, that's what usually Jesus refers to himself this way, time and again throughout the Gospels, but we usually take that directions that Daniel himself wouldn't have gone. Later, in Daniel 7, when Daniel asks the angel to interpret this vision, the angel actually tells him who the Son of Man, the, the, the one like a human being, represents. He is, and I quote, <clears throat> verse 18, it's repeated in verse 22, the Son of Man is the saints of the Most High, plural. Or in verse 27, the people of the saints of the Most High. In other words... The one like a human being is this corporate figure just like the monsters. He is an individual who represents an entire group of people. The people of God is the idea, not necessarily a single individual person. The beasts are inhumane kings and kingdoms with their dehumanizing practices and, and policies in opposition to God, at odds with human flourishing, and contrary to creation itself. And the one like a human being is the people of God who are to be the representatives of true humanity, the embodiment of what it means to be truly and fully human joining in God in humanizing humanity into what it really should be. Only when we let Daniel be Daniel can we then take a step back 
and begin to understand the connection that the New Testament makes between the one like a human being and Jesus. <clears throat> God shows Daniel that the inhumane practices and policies and even political powers will not stand in his court. Rather, the creator God, again, in faithfulness to his creation and to his creatures, will vindicate that which is truly human. And in response to the question of what it now looks like for God's people to be and to act really and truly human, the New Testament's answer is Jesus. He is the human being. He, precisely as the human being, is revealed to be the embodiment of true humanity that now the people of God are to participate in. He is the embodiment of truly humane humanity, defining what it means for us to be and to act truly human. To follow Jesus and to become more like Jesus is not to renounce or repress our humanity. It's to become more truly and more freely human than we've ever been before. <clears throat> 